Chapter 15 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 1 by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 Clara Barton's Change of Base. Spring of 1863. The events we have been describing bring Miss Barton to the end of 1862. The greater part of the year 1863 was spent by her in entirely different surroundings. Believing that the most significant military events of that year would be found in connection with a campaign against Charleston, South Carolina, and that the Army of the Potomac, which she had thus far accompanied, was reasonably well cared for in provisions which were in large degree the result of her establishment, she began to consider the advisability of going farther south. Her reasons for this were partly military and partly personal. The military aspect of the situation was that she learned in Washington that the region about Charleston was likely to be the place of largest service during the year 1863. On the personal side was first her great desire to establish communication with her brother Stephen, who was still in North Carolina. When Charleston was captured, the army could move on into the interior. If she were somewhere near, she could have a part in the rescue of her brother, and she had reason to believe that he might have need of her service after his long residence within the bounds of the Confederacy. Her brother David received a commission in the quartermaster's department, and he was sent to Hilton Head in the vicinity of Charleston. Her cousin, Corporal Leander T. Poor, in the engineer's department, was assigned there partly through her influence. It seemed as though that field promised to her every possible opportunity for public and private usefulness. There she could most largely serve her country. There she could have the companionship of her brother David and her cousin Leander Poor. There she could most probably establish communications with Stephen, who might be in great need of her assistance. It is difficult to see how in the circumstances she could have planned with greater apparent wisdom. If in any respect the outcome failed to justify her expectations, it was because she was no wiser with respect to the military developments of the year 1863 than were the highest officials in Washington. Her request for permission to go to Port Royal was written early in 1863 and was addressed to the Assistant Secretary of War. The request was promptly granted, and she was soon planning for a change of scene. The first three months of 1863, however, were spent in Washington, and we have few glimpses of her activities. In the middle of January, she rejoined the army, acting on information which led her to believe that a battle was impending. 
It should be stated that Clara Barton's diaries are most fragmentary where there is most to record. She was much given to writing, and when she had time, enjoyed recording in detail almost everything that happened. She was accustomed to record the names of her callers, and the persons from whom she received, and to those whom she sent letters, her purchases with the cost of each, her receipts and expenditures, her repairs to her wardrobe, and innumerable other little items. But a large proportion of the most significant events in her public life are not recorded in her diaries, or, if recorded at all, are merely set down in catchwords, and the details are given, if at all, in her letters. Of this expedition, in the winter of 1863, we have no word either in her diary, which she probably left in Washington, or in her letters, which she may have been too busy to write, or which, if written, have not been preserved. Our knowledge of her departure upon this expedition is contained in a letter from her nephew, Samuel Barton. Surgeon General's Office, Washington City, D.C., January 18, 1863. My dear Cousin Mary, Your very acceptable letter, with Ada's and Ida's, was received last Thursday evening. I could not answer sooner, for I have been quite busy evenings ever since it was received. Aunt Clara left the city this morning for the army. Her friend, Colonel Rucker, the assistant quartermaster general, told her last Thursday that the army were about to move and they were expecting a fight and wanted her to go if she felt able. So this morning she... Mr. Wells, who always goes with her to the battles, and Mr. Doe, a Massachusetts man, took the steamboat for Aquia Creek, where they will take the cars for Falmouth and there join the army. Colonel Rucker gave her two new tents and bread, flour, meal, and a new stove, and requested her to telegraph to him for anything she wanted and he would send it to her. Aunt Sally left for Massachusetts last Thursday evening. Sam Barton In the State House in Boston is the battle flag of the 21st Massachusetts, stained with the blood of Sergeant Thomas Plunkett. Both his arms were shot away in the Battle of Fredericksburg, but he planted the flagstaff between his feet and upheld the flag with his two shattered stumps of arms. Massachusetts has few relics so precious as this flag. Clara Barton was with him at Fredericksburg and ministered to him there and remained his lifelong friend. In many ways she manifested her interest in him, rendering her aid in a popular movement which secured him a purse of four thousand dollars. Sergeant Plunkett was in need of a pension, and Clara Barton addressed to the Senate's Committee on Military Affairs a memorial on his behalf. 
It was written on Washington's birthday after her return from the field. Washington, D.C., February 22nd. 63. To the members of the Military Committee, U.S. Senate Senators, nothing less than a strong conviction of duty owed to one of the brave defenders of our nation's honor could induce me to intrude for a moment upon the already burdened and limited term of action yet remaining to your honorable body. During the late Battle of Fredericksburg, the 21st Massachusetts Regiment of Volunteers were ordered to charge upon a battery across an open field. In the terrible fire which assailed them, the colors were three times in quick succession bereft of their support. The third time they were seized by Sergeant Thomas Plunkett of Company E and borne over some three hundred yards of open space when a shell from the enemy's battery in its murderous course killed three men of the regiment and shattered both arms of the sergeant he could no longer support the colors upright but planting his foot against the staff he endeavored to hold them up while he strove by his shouts amid the confusion to attract attention to their condition. For some minutes he sustained them against his right arm, torn and shattered just below the shoulder, while the blood poured over and among the sacred folds, literally obliterating the stripes leaving as fit emblem of such heroic sacrifice only the crimson and the stars. Thus drenched in blood and rent by the fury of eight battles, the noble standard could be no longer borne, and while its gallant defender lay suffering in field hospital from amputation of both arms, it was reverently wrapped by Colonel Clark and returned to the State House in Boston, with the request that others might be sent them. The twenty-first had never lost their colors, but they had worn them out. The old flag and its brave bearer are alike past their usefulness, save as examples for emulation and titles of glory for some bright page of our nation's history. And, while the one is carefully treasured in the sacred archives of the state, need I more than ask of this noble body to put forth its protecting arm to shelter, cherish, and sustain the other. If guarantee were needful for the private character of so true a soldier, it would have been found in the touching address of his eloquent Colonel Clark delivered on Christmas, beside the stretcher waiting at the train at Falmouth to convey its helpless burden to the car, whither he had been escorted not only by his regiment, but his general. The tears which rolled over the veteran cheeks around him were ample testimony of the love and respect he had won from them and today his heart's deepest affections twine round his gallant regiment as the defenders of their country. 
a moment's reflection will obviate the necessity of any suggestions in reference to the provisions needful for his future support. It is only to be remembered that he can never more be unattended. A common doorknob is henceforth as formidable to him as a prison bolt. His little pension as a sergeant would not remunerate an attendant for placing his food in his mouth, to say nothing of how it shall be obtained for both of them. For the sake of formality merely, for to you, gentlemen, I know the appeal is needless, I will close by praying your honorable body to grant to Sergeant Plunkett such pension as shall in your noble wisdom be ample for his future necessities and a fitting tribute to his patriotic sacrifice. C.B. The assignment of her brother David to duty in the vicinity of Charleston was the event which decided her to ask for a transfer to that field, or rather for permission to go there with supplies. It must be remembered that Miss Barton's service was a voluntary service. She was not an army nurse, and had no intention of becoming one. The system of army nurses was under the direct supervision of Dorothea Lynde Dix, a woman from her own county, and one for whom she cherished feelings of the highest regard, but under whom she had no intention of working. Indeed, it is one of the fine manifestations of good sense on the part of Clara Barton that she never at any time attempted what might have seemed an interference with mystics, but found for herself a field of service and developed it according to a method of her own. It will be well at this time to give some account of Miss Dix, and a little outline of her great work in its relation to that of Clara Barton. Dorothea Lynde Dix was born April 4, 1802, and died July 17, 1887. She was 29 years older than Clara Barton, and their lives had many interesting parallels. Until the publication of her biography by Frances Tiffany in 1890, it was commonly supposed that she was born in Worcester County, Massachusetts, where she spent her childhood. But her birth occurred in Maine. Unlike Clara Barton, she had no happy home memories. Her father was an unstable, visionary man, and it was on one of his frequent and futile migrations that she was born. Her biographer states that her childhood memories were so painful that in no hour of the most confidential intimacy could she be induced to unlock the silence which, to the very end of life, she maintained as to all the incidents of her early days. She had no happy memories of association with school or church or sympathetic friends. The background of her childhood memory was of poverty with a lack of public respect for a father who, though of good family, led an aimless, shiftless, wandering life. 
Unhappily, he was a religious fanatic, associated with no church, but issuing tracts which he paid for with money that should have been used for his children, and to save expense, required her to paste or stitch. She hated the employment and the type of religion which it represented. She broke away from it almost violently and went to live with her grandmother in Boston. There she fell under the influence of William Ellery Channing and was born again. To her, through his ministry, came the spirit that quickened and gave life to her dawning hope and aspiration. How she got her education we hardly know, but she began teaching as Clara Barton did when she was fifteen years of age. And like Clara Barton, she became a pioneer in certain forms of educational work. Dorothea Dix opened a school for charitable and religious uses above her grandmother's barn, and in time she inherited property which made her independent so that she was able to devote herself to a life of philanthropy. In 1837, being then 35 years of age, and encouraged by her pastor, Dr. Channing, in whose home she spent much of her time. She launched forth upon her career of devotion to the amelioration of the condition of convicts, lunatics, and paupers. In her work for the insane, she was especially effective. She traveled in nearly all of the states of the Union, pleading for effective legislation to promote the establishment of asylums for the insane. Like Clara Barton, she found an especially fruitful field of service in New Jersey. The Trenton Asylum was in a very real sense her creation. The pauper, the prisoner, and especially the insane of our whole land owe her memory a debt of lasting gratitude. By 1861, her reputation was well established. She was then almost sixty years of age and had gained the well-merited confidence of the medical profession. She was on her way from Boston to Washington and was spending a few days at the Trenton Asylum when the 6th Massachusetts was fired upon in Baltimore on April 19, 1861. Like Clara Barton, she hastened immediately to the place of service. On the very next day, she wrote to a friend, I think my duty lies near military hospitals for the present. This need not be announced. I have reported myself and some nurses for free service at the War Department and to the Surgeon General. Her offer was accepted with great heartiness and with ill-considered promptness. She was appointed superintendent of female nurses. She was authorized to select and assign female nurses to general or permanent military hospitals, they not to be employed without her sanction and approval except in case of urgent need. Whether the United States contained any woman better qualified to undertake such a task as this 
than Dorothea Dix may be questioned. Certainly none could have been found with more of experience or with a higher consecration. It was an impossible task for anyone, and while Miss Dix was possessed of some of the essential qualities, she did not possess them all. Her biographer very justly says, The literal meaning, however, of such a commission as had thus been hastily bestowed on Miss Dix, applying as it did to the woman nurses of the military hospitals of the whole United States, not in actual rebellion, was one which, in those early days of the war, no one so much as began to take in. Such a commission, as the march of events was before long to prove, involved a sheer practical impossibility. It implied not a single-handed woman, nearly sixty and shattered in health, but immense organized departments at twenty different centers. The War Department acted upon what must have appeared a wise impulse in turning this whole matter of women nurses over to the authority of a woman known in all the states, as Miss Dix was known, and possessing the confidence of the people of the whole country. But she was not only sixty years of age and predisposed to consumption, and at that time suffering from other ailments, but she had never learned to delegate responsibility to her subordinates. It had been well for Clara Barton if she had known better how to set others to work, but she knew how better than Dorothea Dix and was twenty years younger. Indeed, Clara Barton was younger at eighty than Dorothea Dix was at sixty but she herself suffered somewhat from this same limitation. Dorothea Dix could not be everywhere, and with her system she needed to be everywhere, just as Clara Barton, under her system, had to be at the very front in direct management of her own line of activities. But Dorothea Dix, besides needing to be simultaneously on twenty battlefields, had to be where she could examine and sift out and prepare for service the chosen from among a great many thousand women applying for the privilege of nursing wounded soldiers, and ranging all the way from sentimental schoolgirls to sickly and decrepit grandmothers. Again, Mr. Tiffany says, Women nurses were volunteering by the thousands, the majority of them without the experience or health to fit them for such arduous service. Who should pass on their qualifications? Who station, superintend, and train them? Now, under the atlas weight of care and responsibilities so suddenly thrust on Miss Dix, the very qualifications which had so preeminently fitted her for the sphere in which she had wrought such miracles of success began to tell against her. She was nearly sixty years old, and with a constitution sapped by malaria, overwork, and pulmonary weakness. She had for years been a lonely and single-handed worker, 
planning her own projects, keeping her own counsel, and pressing on, unhampered by the need of consulting others toward her self-chosen goal. The lone worker could not change her nature. She tried to do everything herself, and the feat before long became an impossibility. At length, she came to recognize this, again and again, exclaiming in her distress, this is not the work I would have my life judged by. By that, however, in part her life work must be judged, and in the main, greatly to her advantage and wholly to her honor. We can see, however, the inevitable limitations of her work. Up to that time, she had dealt with small groups of subordinates from whom she could demand and secure some approach to perfection of organization and discipline. This she could not possibly secure in her present situation. Again we quote the discriminating words of her biographer. But in war, especially in a war precipitately entered into by a raw and inexperienced people, all such perfection of organization and discipline is out of the question. If a good field hospital is not to be had, the best must be made of a bad one. If a skillful surgeon is not at hand, then an incompetent one must hack away after his own butcher fashion. If selfish and greedy attendants eat up and drink up the supplies of delicacies and wines for the sick, then enough more must be supplied to give the sick the fag end of a chance. It is useless to try to idealize war. All this, however, Miss Dix could not bring herself to endure. Ready to live on a crust and to sacrifice herself without stint, her whole soul was on fire at the spectacles of incompetence and callow indifference she was doomed daily to witness. She became overwrought and lost the requisite self-control. Inevitably, she became involved in sharp altercations with prominent medical officials and with regimental surgeons. It is necessary to recall this in order to understand Clara Barton's attitude toward the established military hospitals. She was not, in any narrow or technical term, a hospital nurse. She stood ready to assist the humblest soldier in any possible need, and to work in any hospital at any task, howsoever humble if that was where she could work to advantage. But she knew the hospitals in and about Washington too well not to appreciate these infelicities. She had no intention whatever of becoming a cog in that great and unmanageable machine. Clara Barton held Dorothea Dix in the very highest regard, in all her diaries and letters in her memoranda of conversations which her diaries sometimes contain, there is no word concerning Dorothea Dix that is not appreciative. In 1910, the New York World wired her a request that she telegraph to that newspaper, at its expense, 
a list of eight names of women whom she would nominate for a woman's hall of fame. The eight names which she sent in reply to this request were Abigail Adams, Lucretia Mott, Lucy Stone Blackwell, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Frances Dana Gage, Maria Mitchell, Dorothea Dix, and Mary A. Bickerdyke. It was a fine indication of her broad-mindedness that she should have named two women, Dorothea Dix and Mother Bickerdyke, who should have won distinction in her own field and might have been deemed her rivals for popular affection. If Clara Barton was capable of any kind of jealousy, it was not a jealousy that would have thought ever to undermine or belittle a woman like Dorothea Dix. Few women understood so well as Clara Barton what Dorothea Dix had to contend with. Her contemporary references show how fully she honored this noble elder sister and how loyally she supported her. At the same time, Clara Barton kept herself well out from under the administration and control of Miss Dix. In some respects, the two women were too much alike in their temperament for either one to have worked well under the other. For that matter, neither one of them greatly enjoyed working under anybody. It is at once to the credit of Clara Barton's loyalty and good sense that she went as an independent worker. But the hospitals in and about Washington were approaching more and more nearly something that might be called system, and that system was the system of Dorothea Dix. Clara Barton had all the room she wanted on the battlefield. There was no great crowd of women clamoring to go with her when under fire she crossed the bridge at Fredericksburg. But by the spring of 1863, it began to be less certain that there was going to be as much fighting as there had been in the immediate vicinity of Washington. There was a possibility that actual field service with the Army of the Potomac was going to be less, and that the base hospitals, with their organized system, would be able to care more adequately for the wounded than with the hospitals farther south, where the next great crisis seemed to be impending. These were among the considerations in the mind of Clara Barton when she left the Army of the Potomac, my own army, as she lovingly called it, and secured her transfer to Hilton Head, near Charleston. End of chapter 15